afternoon, good, good morning, good morning and good afternoon, <clears throat> good afternoon, good morning, it's another brisk day here in Colorado. What drives your learning? I don't know. I've always just been a learner. Actually, that's the topic of uh, the stream. Synchronicity, anybody? So fucking synchronicity. Oh my god, so fucking synchronicities. I was uh, thinking about... Uh, I was watching this show. <clears throat> Me and my wife watch a, a glass-blowing show. It's really, it's really interesting. Um, and <clears throat> I was looking at the art of it and, you know, being a, a metalsmith, it's easy to look at those art forms and just be like, wow, that's just hands-on, ancient, like, like very basic rudimentary, uh, things happening there. <clears throat> and then I was thinking about learning and then I was thinking about, uh, school and we all know how screwed up the this, this school system is, not just ideologically, but even if you removed the left-leaning, psychopathic uh, progressivism from school, you'd still see something interesting and off about it. And I saw it, and I, and I looked at it, and I, and I split it into fe uh, female and male. And I, I thought to myself, men, we, we seek skill and learning, so that, because that's a prerequisite for competition, you know, and that's reduced. I understand there's some things that might be missing in there and the variables, whatnot, but just at a basic level, men want to learn and, and use their hands and exert energy and have camaraderie and competition available to them, sometimes simultaneously. And so it's looking at it like from the moment a male child becomes aware of his ability to use his hands to build, to destroy. Um, schooling for them should be strictly like default making stuff and, and hunting, building, engineering, metal smithing, blacksmithing, blowing glass, you name it, all of these things. And that should be the default. And if someone the anomaly of the that group says, uh, well, I just kind of want to get into like more of like clothing wear or like nursing or, or some other thing that's maybe a little more feminine. They're, they're the, uh, the outlier and it's fine. But um, we do the opposite. We raise children and men specifically and we place them in a room. And uh, we all know this is the, the, the masculinity the testosterone, it's all being diminished, not just physically through food and whatnot, but um, socially it's being uh, stigmatized. And even without that effort, you'd still have a man, a young man in a room looking at a teacher, not using their hands, not using their energy, not building their muscle, not, um, you know, letting their aggression out. They're doing none of it. It's just sitting at a table. So what they do 
is a lot the distraction becomes uh, females, you know, women, you know, that becomes the, the base level opportunity to express the, um, the dominance to just, you know, socially. So you, you're starting to raise these men who are competing socially and sexually, which is normal, but the social aspect used to be given, the social hierarchy was given by the skill. Um, which is still slightly the case, but it's not as accessible. You know, uh, the jock can become the skillful performer and get the woman, not like Bill Gates. Um, but it's just interesting that we kind of screwed up the whole system because we live in a uh, tech-driven, efficiency-driven world where the men, the young men, are no longer needed you know, they're still needed for wars, of course, but they're no longer needed uh, for brute strength, uh, for apprenticeships, um, to be under the master, uh, the builder. And instead, they are in the, the academy. They are in academia and sitting in front of a computer. And uh, they really, men really uh, long for being demanded of. It's just, it's in our nature to be demanded of. We're demanded of our families and our wives and our, our and uh, the world around us. And more and more, this cube, this cube-like system of offices, delivery programs, memberships is removing the, the demand, not even the demand. It's just removing um, the option the scene option for, for a young man to just exhibit their brute physicality. Um, and the same would go for women where you, you default, um, teach women differently than men. Why are men and women taught the same uniformly in a school with uniform information and, um, and whatnot? It's totally backwards. It's just assuming they don't have different leanings or traits or characteristics that are different enough to uh, change the focus of their of what they're learning. It's uh, and really once you see that you go oh, maybe maybe public schools were al- always uh, sl- slave camps, slave training camps, you know, and uh, I just find that interesting that if the you know. A lot of people are going, looking back to homeschooling or classical education, and that's cool. But I wonder if the emergence of the distinction will come will come back, where the default training for men is specific to a field, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly to a specific kind of learning, uh, physicality based, skill, competition, camaraderie, uh, masculinity, danger. And, uh, and how, if that's the default, it's nothing against the, the minority, you know, the guy's like, oh, you guys are fucking key. I like being around all this fucking muscle, but I'm going to get a fucking typewriting home economics. And it's fine. Go, go there. It's fine. But on a, on a, on a massive scale, I just see that as something really interesting and, and it's sort of, it, uh. I was provoked into that thinking when I was looking at, you know, I, I watch, I like to watch skilled labor. 
I like to watch tradesmen in the act of trading, you know, like, you know, unlike Ben Shapiro, who, who his, his accessibility to the trade and this, the, man, the skilled man is reduced to a, a day scrolling on Grindr. <clears throat> I think it's just to socialize the kids. Yeah. Yeah, socialize. Probably. Where did I learn my metal smithing skills? I learned, um, my introduction was through a, um, a Greek dude named Kostas. And then, uh, he didn't have time, uh, to teach me. So I found a small Korean run trade school in Los Angeles. Um, which some of you have may, may have heard the story. I'll tell it again. Cause it's, it's a really funny story. Um, when uh, when I went to check out the school, it's all Korean run. Korean master jeweler, his wife, a lot of Korean students, some Japanese, and the rest are just uh, in indiscernible Chinese faces. <clears throat> and um, so I went to orientation, and I sat down at the desk, took a look at the school. I was like, "Yes, this is awesome." You know, keep in mind I'm like twenty four, five maybe, and uh, I meet the head. Uh, the dean's wife, and uh, she's in a little black tube dress, sleeveless, uh, shoulders showing, tiny arms, um, and she's sitting across this giant desk, um, and I'm just talking. And I'm like, I want to, you know, I'm really interested in this. And she's, and then she's like, she kept saying like, "Oh, you come, you come, oh, you like it, you come." And I'm like, okay. And then we wrapped it up, and uh, so I was, like, pretty excited. And as she stood up, she kept saying, like, oh, good, you come, we want you. And um, and she kind of waved over to me, but she was walking around the desk as to say goodbye. Like, the, the whatever the formal Korean uh, uh, departure custom is. And... Um, and so I made my way around the giant desk with her and met at the shorter side of the desk. And um, and I thought she was opening her arms. So I was like, okay, maybe it's Korean culture to hug. But I couldn't tell if it was a proper hug. So what I did is I... And keep in mind, her arms out is just might be normal. Like she, you know, it's like I couldn't tell if she had elbow, elbow joints. Uh, that's how short her arms are. But... Um, I went to hug her kind of, and what happened is I pressed my lips um, like against her bare tiny shoulder and gave her a weird shoulder, not a kiss, more like a cushioning, like a cushion. Like I, like I cushioned, I stopped, I slowed the speed of my head hitting her shoulder with my lips. It was just like a, like a mouth half kiss hug. And uh, as it turns out, she wasn't trying to hug me. She was just had her her little um, her little T Rex arms up, and she was just going like, "You come, you come to the school." Like arms up, like, "Oh, it's great!" And I thought it was hug time, and uh, nobody talked about it. I remember walking to the elevator and just thinking, "I hug kissed the dean's wife." 
on orientation day. And uh, nobody talked about it ever. I didn't, didn't mention it to her. You know, her left shoulder was wet. Um, I felt cultured. Um, and in a way, that experience, it sort of, it was like, well, now I have to. There was like a sort of guilt to it too. Like I, like I inadvertently accosted someone with my lips. Um, and so, you know, I made it up to her by just going, going to the school, learning everything, teaching at the school. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think walking by her in the later years when, uh, I was wrapping up my time there that she thought, oh, I know you kiss my shoulder. Like she thought that and gave me a little like wink, not like she liked it, but she knows that there was something, uh, there was a mistake there. <clears throat> and so, yeah, that's where I went to jewelry school. You should have just told her it's the Catskills Mountain greeting. I wish, I wish there was a greeting. I wish there was a greeting there. I wish greetings came back. And I'm not talking fist bumps, shoulder bumps. You know? Oh, you hug my, you hug kiss my shoulder. That was funny though. Here's a creepy clown I drew last night. Don't mean to freak you out, but that's what I drew. <clears throat> I tried a new style of just drawing. Like I held the pencil at the very end. And so it gave an effect of like a child not having their full capacity. Um just to see like what kind of lines would come. And obviously scariness comes from that. Oh, uh, here's something. I watched this guy once in a while to see what the comments and what the thing is. Um, his channel's rationality rules. I think his name is Steven Woodfrom. But um, he, he, he uh, takes apart Sam Harris's uh, moral landscape. He does a pretty good job at it. The problem is toward the end, he kind of does exactly what, what he clearly cited that that Sam Harris was doing, which is Sam Harris's moral landscape, it uh, it basically violates the is ought distinction. It's uh, David Hume's uh, distinction that you can't derive an ought from an is, as far as morality is concerned. Absent an if, if this, then we ought to. Yes, we can do that, but without the if. Uh, you can't just derive an, an objective ought um, in that in the scientific worldview. So science can't give you value value claims. Um, and so he he uh, he did that, and then he went into this. Earlier, I said that I still find Harris's moral landscape to be of great value, and I'll conclude by explaining why. Whilst Hume's guillotine isn't in and of itself a trick, a fair amount of people have nevertheless tricked themselves into thinking that science and facts are utterly irrelevant to morality and a truly grotesque cost. Under the rubric of respecting other cultures, otherwise very intelligent people shrug their shoulders at the suffering of others because they've convinced themselves that they have no justification to intervene. Harris talks of this at length in multiple chapters, and it's my interpretation that it's this apathetic crowd that he wrote the moral landscape to startle. 
They witness, for instance, women being treated as second-class citizens and are convinced, ironically, that it would be egregious for them to speak against such atrocity. Further still, some of these people accuse people like Harris or myself as being authoritarian since we want to force our beliefs on others. But this simply isn't true. Perhaps my favourite moral philosopher, Jeremy Bentham, wrote that nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure. It is for them alone to point out what we ought to do, as well as to determine what we shall do. On the one hand, the standard of right and wrong. On the other, the chain of causes and effects are fastened to their throne. They govern us in all we do, in all we say, in all we think. Every effort we make to throw off our subjection will serve but to demonstrate and confirm it. The point of my quoting Bentham is that whilst there's nothing to say that we ought to value our well-being, everybody does, courtesy of evolution by natural selection, the moral mistakes of others. If you think I'm not serving my goal of maximizing my well-being because I believe that some fact is true when it's not, tell me. Don't just shrug your shoulders and say, oh, it's another culture. No. If I'm subordinating half the human race because of an edict in a book that I'm convinced was created by the architect of the universe, correct me. Show me how the facts that I believe in are not true. So he made a bunch of the same mistakes. He went into, he went from adequately demolishing Sam Harris's stance and his violation of the isot. And then he suddenly just said, um, you know, science... Science and to argue that science and facts have nothing to do with morality, he just just by introducing the term morality means he, he's standing on an objective claim of what morality is. You can't you can't reference or pull morality into an equation without assuming its objectivity. So that's a mistake he made first. But then he said, and then he presupposed that subjectivity. Uh, you know, uh, sorry, subordination. You know, he's talking about the religions, Christianity, whatever, if you see that, you know, you have a belief where your, your, um, your ideology is, is about the subordination of people, you have, you basically have the right to step in. And so he just did the same thing. Sam Harris says the, the diminished well-being is, and the, and the, uh, and the heightened well-being is the moral landscape, you know, well, well-being is good, suffering is bad morally. And, uh, that's been demolished. And so he, he actually just did the same thing. He introduced Ben from and said, there's pain and pleasure and which assumes that pleasure is good morally. Pleasure is good. So if I, if I finger bang a squirrel, that's morally good. You know, what, what, uh, all of the dreamy things that, that Dildo Dawkins wants to do to, to little children, hasten children. It is good. It, it feels good. It's pleasurable. That means it's morally good, according to this guy. And he just kind of rent, went right over it and didn't even notice he just did exactly the same thing. And then he said um, something like you, you, you have the obligation to interfere with uh, someone's... Um, with someone's moral failure, something like that. I paraphrased it. Um, and so again, when you say moral failure, like when you say moral deficiency, you're assuming an objective basis for morality. So this guy, while he just took apart uh, Do uh, Hawkins or whatever, Sam, Sam Harris, he just made a bunch of claims that require a moral basis, a moral basis. And then he flirted with 
the fact that, uh, not the fact, he flirted with the idea, Bemfram's idea, that we have pleasure and pain and that right and wrong is inextricably tied to those two, which is literally the same as the moral landscape with different words. And all of his followers are like, yeah, yeah, good, that's good. You did it. And you're like, you did nothing. You just made all of the same mistakes, but with an accent. Okay. Depends on the squirrel. True. Yeah. It's just, it's just silly. Then nobody catches these guys. They just run off with their, their massive followings and they never get confronted. And then they never talk to people who are, who can adequately, you know, confront them, you know? Does meditation have any utility? Yeah, if because utility is based on arbitrary goals. So if you want to sit and do nothing for a day, then meditation has utility. Um, I do think that uh, meditation can be parallel to uh, prayer. But the problem I reject meditation is it sends you inward to yourself. Uh, it creates a sort of like a monistic uh, illusion, you know, that you're one with everything and everything's one and nothing's uh, this and that. And this is me and you is me and they is me and they's they and Z's are up. So, I mean, I've meditated. It's helpful for like, uh, calming your heart rate. Um, maybe arguably getting present to what's actually happening in your body. And I don't mean at the Deepak Chopra molecular level. I mean, like just pain, just regular normal shit that you might be numb to during the day or just avoid. And if you concentrate on your breathing, uh, you might be more aware of what's happening in your body and get like a deep sense of um, insight on your own body that you would normally have, uh, you know, tampered out or just, you know, drank away or smoked away or did something away, you know. And uh, so, yeah, yeah. In in long, yes. In short, it's arbitrary. Depends on what you mean by meditate. You know, it's like I don't think I'm meditating unless I'm levitating. And you know, my my agent said maybe I shouldn't do that. You know, because I I did a little bit of a an example for them at our last meeting, and they were like, "Whoa, fuck, Bucko." You can't just go around floating around, you know. Can you sign this contract? <clears throat> Meditation should be the state of simply existing. It's hard, leaves you. Yeah, I mean, once you... I've been through intense meditation. I went to a 10-day, really intense meditation retreat called Vipassana. And uh, way up north in California. And uh, I'm talking 4.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. You break for three half-hour little breaks. No talking. No nonverbal communication. No exercise. No phones. No books. No nothing. Just sitting. And um, yeah, there's something... the you. What was helpful about it, it was like how much I realized that I don't just uh, 
sit and just kind of not just relax. It's more than relaxing. It's like actually being aware of what is, you know, and that's a form that's your access, I believe, to gratitude. I don't really believe you become one with anything or whatever variations, you know, you know, as Sam Harris would call mi- mindfulness. Oh, I think that m- mindfulness is, 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 is uh, you're mindful, but you don't believe in, believe in free will. Why would you urge anyone to be mindful if they don't, if you don't believe in free will? Oh, oh you, 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 you have to sign some books. Um, um, don't get me in front of people who ask those questions. Do, do I smell uh, a Swiss? Is that a is that a is this a, a little bit of a, a truffle? Uh, I just smell smell like some smell some cheese. It'd be very very it'd be very weird if I did, wasn't smelling cheese right now. <clears throat> Meditation is toxic and creates ignorant zombies. Well, it does. It did. It is based on a generally, generally based on this idea that um, there really is no suffering or bad or good. You're just everything's one in a perfect balance, and uh, you're just here to observe and notice. And you know, those are just fo- people who don't have kids. You know, if you tried to take any of those guys seriously in reality. Um, and you're a father and you have to intervene constantly and you have to, uh, import and deliver structure and boundaries constantly. Um, if you took that meditation generally, the general Eastern kind of philosophy, you just, you wouldn't do, you'd raise psychopaths. You'd just raise the worst people ever. And that's why the only logical and clear and pure uh, example of living in consistently with that with that view is being a monk, you know, and so yeah, you're nothing. And then obviously, the only way to actually embody that is to live nothing, live as close to nothing as possible. So it's like it's almost self-referential. It's like uh, it's it's um what do you call it? Self-fulfilling. It's like, you know, all is nothing, you know, cause the, the moment we all got out of that 10 day meditation, we got our phones. We talked, we talked about the part where our knees hurt. Uh, we, we, we were already in the past. We were already bringing up the past, talking about it. It was real with us in the moment. You know, we're looking forward to our drive home cause we're going to blast some music. And we had the experience. We got somewhere, which is funny. Cause the irony is that the entire teaching is about not getting anywhere and just being where you are. And so everyone finishes up and celebrates that they finished. They, they celebrate, uh, their, their journey completing this very difficult task, which it was, um, of meditating for 10 days straight all day into the night. And so, um, there's, it's almost like the irony is all over the place. It's almost like yoga competitions, you know? Like that's already like already westernized, totally perverted the entire ideology. What we got here? 
Can someone be morally grounded without being specifically Christian? Not grounded. People can be moral, but they can't ground the claim. They can't ground what the basis or, or standard is. You can do it vaguely. Um, like the closest I think is, aside from like maybe Islam, would be Sikhism, which is another Easternish um, Indian philosophy or religion. And so they do the proper uh, circular basis of morality that, you know, certain acts are acts against God and were made, paraphrasing, in the image of God, but not exactly um, the same way. They don't justify it the same way. Um, and so uh, they have a basis that it's an act against God, whereas, you know, this is totally different than the, the material arguments for morality which you know you can't have a material argument for morality it's not it's not that it's not po it's 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 because it's not possible it's not because it's like you know science bad it's just it's not logical there's no immaterial absolute values in physical in the physical world so i mean that's why the argument that we developed morality as a um as a uh, tool to survive is silly because you could easily justify a lot of um, horrific, arguably immoral activity in the name of survival. I mean, you'd be like, what? I was surviving. Morality is just a tool for our survival. So I'm surviving. Therefore, what I just did is moral. Silly, silly. But no, the, the you can't you can't ground it. Uh, Christianity is is the the coherent um, worldview that grounds all of these things and beyond. It doesn't just ground like it doesn't just ground morality, reasoning, logic, and uh, you know the unity between the mind, the physical, and the immaterial. Um, but it actually embodies uh, who God is in the in a man, uh, which is consistent, and then um, and it also deals with um, with logic and philosophy. So like every all of it's you know based in reasoning, but also in faith. So it's like it never attempts to prove anything in the physical. So when you see uh, Christians using um, classical foundational arguments, which I'll 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 play with, but only to pull ourselves out of the classical foundation, which is which is the model that most people argue in, which is like the physical world, the cosmological argument, the uh, uniformity in nature, uh, the pragmatic code in DNA, um, the the extreme peculiar order in the universe you know, fine tuning, all of these arguments, they sound kind of fun on their, um, on their face, but, uh, they are, the model itself is arguing from an atheist materialist perspective. And that's why it doesn't work. <clears throat> Cause then you're just arguing facts, uh, facts against facts and how to determine facts and how to deal with facts. And then whose facts are better. And then, you know, that, that is, that's what a debate is. Debate is debate. I don't really get into philosophy or logic. That's not, that's not necessary. We just need to see the facts. We see the data. 
and then we, we isolate the data, and we compare the interpretations to data. And someone's right, and someone's wrong. That's, that's all, folks. Um, and so, yeah, you don't want to go down that road. <clears throat> the best arguments are what justifies knowledge and argumentation in the first place. How do you even begin to justify the fact that anybody's arguing over something called truth at all? Well, it's, that's just a given. Uh, I mean, to, to think that we have to justify uh, a concept like truth, I mean, that, 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 just, that, that, that just is absurd. I mean, um, if, there, if there's a, if there's a, a loving uh, uh, God, uh, 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 what's that? What's that? A, it's a mild monster. It's like a, almost like a mild. No, no, it's not. It's not a. It's not a Gouda. A Vardy. A Vardy. A Vardy. Meth Squad checking in. Is that Yord from Meth Squad? Free Ted K. Ted K was right. He was just wrong about his. Uh, he was just wrong about his solutions. Solutions are silly. That's another thing. Is like solutions are often presented morally, and um, and that's just something that people cannot. It's very hard for all of us to confront is that if morality exists, there can't be an actual solution based in reality. It's, it's not an opinion. It's just the that's the logical consequences of, of immaterial, absolute prescriptive law. It can't be, you can't trap it. Ted K, he was so right about it. He saw the utilitarianism. He saw that the the ultimate end goal of human is to be managed and regulated. He he felt in his his mind. He was a little weird though. I think he probably got some CIA treatment. If not, he was born totally Aspergery. I should have speaking of Aspergers, I should have Ben Shapiro and Ted Kaczynski do an interview together. See how that goes. Wow. What you did was atrocious. I mean, the the, the atrocities and and the and the, the violence is just that's not the way you go about it. You have to go about it lawfully, and that is that is why you should have really stuck to law. You know, you're you're really good at mathematics, but you should apply your mathematical knowledge to to law and you get a job and make a lot of money. You know, if Ted, Ted Kaczynski actually worshipped capitalism uh, a little bit more, you know, then maybe he could have done done some good in the world, save a lot of money, buy a couple of houses. Sell some sheets. That's the, the, that, the that's American dream, folks. That is what the founding feathers had in mind. Yeah. That's all, folks. <clears throat> Memes aside, what do we actually think of Jordan Peterson? Jordan Peterson is just a guy who's tortured by utility and just like, you know, he's, he wants the truth. He's pro, I don't know. I mean, this is an assumption is that he's, he's tortured by the mechanism that gives him success because it, it actually is a form of duct tape over his mouth. And because he's such a, um, 
a wild, a wildly devoted statesman and like, you know, intellectual. He likes to think about all this stuff. Um, you know, he wants to be liked by his peers. And so I'm sure he deals with that pressure a lot of like, you know, what the ostracization would be if he were to suddenly speak truthfully on every matter, every matter equally. You know, that probably, you know, it's probably not a good idea, you know? It's like, you know, my contract specifically says this is a list of things you cannot talk about. You know, and I signed that. I signed that with my my pinky. You know, they they said, stick your finger out. And I said, okay, you know, it's like, depends on what finger. You know, and they said, your little one. And I said, well, well, I guess one of them is a little bit smaller. And so they pricked me with a little golden needle. And I said, well, shit, you know, that hurt, but I'm, I'm more perplexed that the fact that you have a golden needle. And it's like, as I bled, which was like, you know, you know, watching my smallest finger cry, you know, it was almost like a crucifixion in a way. And it was like, a, you know, I, I suddenly became present to how unfair it was to the other fingers. And that's the next title of my book, Nine Innocent Fingers. Uh, but other than that, uh, he's a he's a charlatan. He just mix uh mixes Christian mixes young Jungian psychology with Nietzschean philosophy, and then he lays it over a Christian structure. He he he's a he just takes from the the smorgasbord and he layers. He's a remixer. Fuck yeah, dude. That's probably the best compliment I've ever had, you know? It's like they, they quaff my hair up and they put me in all of these sweaters and they take a lot of photos of me, you know? And it's like, I'm basically like, you know, urban outfitters, but for philosophy, you know? And it's like, what I really want is like what you just said, you know, that would be, that would be epic. You know? What's your opinion on mortgages? Uh, mortgages are horrible, um, and uh, we've we've in we've inherited uh, a system that's almost uh, not impossible, but um, we've inherited a system of of usury and uh, and loans that almost make it impossible for people to live if they're not choosing a rent. So you don't really own anything. Uh, I have a mortgage. Um, and uh, I never get the sense that I own my house at all. Um, but if you can avoid it, you should. And so that takes a little bit of discipline. Uh, I think similarly to why the reason we, I, I think we should uh, raise men to, to know how to do things from a very young age, um, you know, and put more emphasis on that than even schooling or knowing stuff. Well, I totally disagree. I think if you know the history, you can't change a tire. Well, it doesn't matter. I, you know, that's what the capitalism is. Free market. I can hire Brett. Brett's on retainer. He changes the tire for me. Uh, what was I saying? 
Sorry, I, sometimes he takes over. <clears throat> um, oh, mortgages. Yeah, is uh, training people to save up, not for college, buy a house. We're saving for college for you, son, so you can learn things that'll change in four years drastically, and then the the, the industry won't be the same because the technological advancement, son. We're gonna say this is your college fund. What? No, do a house fund. What are you doing? A college fund? If you have a house fund, then you can go learn whatever you want part-time and you own your house. Instead, you get a hundred, two hundred thousand dollar loan for some bullshit seminar that takes four years to learn, that the industry that it's for changes, and you leave, you don't have a house, but now you're trying to get a job. And you have proof of a piece of paper that you learned something, but the bigger piece of paper is hiding in your closet that says $150,000 in debt. And then you take out another loan for a car to get to the job that you want, that you might get, so that you can start saving to pay uh, for a house maybe. So you college and getting a loan for college is, is literally investing in two more loans. A college loan is a loan for two more loans. Whereas if you just save starting now for a house, it's your house fund. A college, son. You too can go to the moon, son. Son, don't you want to be big in the world? You got to go to college, son. How about I save up for a house, uh, you know, what? starting at five. And then when I'm 23 or whatever... I have, a, I have um, you know, half of a house paid, all of a house paid, whatever, whatever it ends up being, whatever you can do. Imagine what it would be like if you graduated from whatever high school is going to be in the future. And, you know, you're reaching 25, 28, and you buy a house outright because you saved for a house. And that was the most important thing to you. And you just own a house. There's no mortgage payment. You have to now figure out how to eat and just pay for some of your amenities and some of your fancy shiny stuff. They don't teach you that. They teach you, no, the, the college thing. And then, and then you have your name on the thing. And then you, you get a job. It's a terrible. Your Our parents, for those of you who had parents who pushed you in that direction, horrible just a horrible thing that they did to you. So my opinion is uh, try not to have them. If you have them, like myself, try to get them as low as possible and get out of them. So my plan is to not have a mortgage, you know. So that means that means bust my ass, save, and even on the next one, even if you do get a mortgage, can you imagine having like, you know, you save so much that you pay almost all, you know, more than half of a house down, you know, everyone's like, no, don't do that. You need that money to you know, spread your money out. It's like, I don't know. I'm not a financial planner or advisor. I'm just saying saving for a house from what, for like when you're very young, just swap out the word college for house. You do it any, you're going to try to do it anyway with college. So just remove the word college. That's gone. The bubble burst. It's over. There's no value. You know, save up for something physical that you can own. My husband is pushing our sons to go to college. Yeah, it's just terrible. 
it's he's wrong. He's just wrong. You know, you can you can go learn a skill, you know. College is it it's suitable for like very specific fields. Liar. Like if you want to be a lawyer, or you want to be a doctor. Uh, but even then, it's just like you're just in debt. All you're doing is giving your kids debt. And why? For what? Anything they what's the likelihood that your three your kids are going to choose a, something that justifies their their um the balance they owe. You know? Think about how quickly technology moves in all fields. It's all so disruptive. Like forget 4 years, let's take 1 year. You study one thing for 1 year, guaranteed that field has been hit with disruptive technology. Guaranteed. Fundamentally changes the entire landscape of that field. That's it. I mean, that's the best argument against college. It's like, it's not consistent with technological growth, period. Now, if they change college to like intense six month, one year, two year, maybe intensive, intense degrees, then that makes sense. If I I think if someone's out and they want to fundamentally change college, they should start competing and changing what college means. And then the people hiring will lower their standards or change their standards from four-year degree and all that shit. That's why you have to get government out of dictating what's necessary to have a job. I mean, that's one of the main constraints that I see. Anyway, I got to go. Um... Feeding by Savage means volume two. There's a couple left. I think there's like a box left. Uh, I sign them. And uh, I send them. For those of you waiting on your paintings, thank you for your patience. Uh, It's been a lot of work, a lot of paintings to do. um, And uh, I appreciate your patience. Um, And uh, they will be shipped soon. I'm almost done with a third massive Mao Zedong painting. I will definitely post a picture of it. In the meantime, have a good day. God bless.